and Football Analytics podcast from OptiPro. I'm Ryan Byron, I'll be your host for this episode. Today we've got something slightly different and it's an episode I'm particularly excited about. Within this podcast we have traditionally and quite understandably focused on applied analysis and the, the day-to-day role of those within analysis and recruitment departments. Today we explore the role of the sporting director in more detail and the relationship between this role and an entire philosophy within a football club, right from the first team to the academy. We've got two great guests today. Joining me is uh, three of the back regular and head of Optipro, Ben McCrill. Welcome, Ben. Thanks, Ryan. Good to be here. Good, good. And we're here in Birmingham, of course. How are you finding uh, life in our new Birmingham office? Yeah, it's good. Um, it's good to have everyone in one place. Uh, and certainly this central location helps us out with being close uh, to a lot of the clubs. Um, so, yeah, it's been really good so far. Uh, get a bit, a few more licks of paint in here and we'll, be, uh, we'll all be good. <laughs> And we're you know, a few months into our, our new marriage with Scout 7. Um, how's it been being, uh, being head of that family? Yeah, it's been great. I mean, we've obviously had a long history with these guys, so we've known everyone for, uh, for quite some time. Um, but uh, we're all really excited about what we're going to be able to do over the next uh, few months. And I certainly hope that over the next uh, two or three months leading into the summer, uh, the clubs will start to see some of the work that we've been doing over the last, uh, you know, last period. Uh, and hopefully you can be as excited about it as we are. Lovely stuff. And I'm delighted to welcome our next guest, uh, Wolverhampton Wanderers Sporting Director, Kevin Thurlow. Kevin, great to have you on the show. Yeah, really looking forward to it. Excited to be here. Nice to see the new offices and um, see what you guys are up to and looking forward to the podcast. Excellent. And you're, you're sh- shooting off to Middlesbrough later today, that's correct? Yeah, we play, uh, we play early Friday evening, so very much looking forward to that game. Uh, it's going to be a very tough one, I think. They're doing, they're doing pretty well. So, uh, yeah, looking forward to getting up there and getting going again after the international break. Good stuff, good stuff. So, we'll get straight into it. And to start with, could you just give us a brief overview of your, your career to date, please, Kevin? Yeah, I suppose um, I suppose the first thing to say was I started as, a, as everybody else does, wanting to be a footballer and, and trying to be a footballer. Uh, ended up failing miserably at that, at that level. I played professional football for Shrewsbury Town for a short period and then spent most of my time as a semi-pro. Um, had to go back into education to hopefully come back into a, to a job like this. Um, probably my first real break in football was working for the Football Association of Wales. I was a football development officer uh, there and then um, managed to secure the director of coach education job. Um, which gave me a fantastic opportunity. We were a very small organisation, and so it allowed us to have access and experience that I probably wouldn't have got at a, at a much bigger organisation. I left there uh, to go to Preston North End as head of youth. When I left the Welsh FA, I was directing the pro licence and the advanced licence courses um, with the UEFA accreditation, and talking about lot theory, but, but really wanting to get in a position where I started to become, become a practitioner again. Um, I spent a year there before following Billy Davis to uh, Derby County, where I was initially recruited as academy manager, but spent pretty much all of the season, the first, certainly the first season as an acting assistant manager, acting first team coach, uh, where we were promoted through the playoffs um, um, to the Premier League after having beat uh, West Brom in the final. Uh, and then spent two and a quarter years there and then moved across to Wolverhampton Wonders, where I am today, initially as academy manager. And I've spent the last four and a half years as a uh, sport director. Great stuff. And we're going we're to jump straight into your current role. Could you give us a bit of insight in terms of what this looks like both day to day and and the, on the longer term? Yeah, I suppose first and foremost in a very general context, it's uh, my general understanding is that clubs tend to frame it differently. And I know uh, certainly on the continent, 
there's a, there's a much clearer job description for the role of sporting director. But in England, I think what people t- tend to do is they tend to try and fix it and organise it on the basis of what their clubs need. On the back of that, you've got a lot of other titles as well: director of football, head of football ops, you know, sporting director, technical director, etc., etc. Uh, at Wolves, the way in which it's always operated is that um, the head coach, not a manager, has a clear focus for organisation of the team, preparation of the team, performances and results. And the sporting director has responsibility for all of the element, all of the operations and elements of the operation that support that process. So, for example, in my remit, I would have academy, coaching, performance analysis, medical services, sports science, recruitment. I would have all of those elements. It'd be, a, it'd be on that basis in which we're organised. On a day-to-day basis, um, first port of call is always having contact with the head coach, having conversations about what the day looks like, having conversations about what's going on in that environment, and then it really much is trying to get yourself organised and getting a programme in place to allow you to, to achieve things, whilst also supporting all of those heads of the department to be uh, best, in class, best in class across the operation. Seems like there's a there's a huge number of people that you're connecting with at high levels, both um, yeah, right across the football club. Yeah. Is there a real case of managing upwards and managing sort of down and across, and maintaining those relationships at all different levels? I suppose. Yeah, well, again, from a general perspective, again, my first view on it is that relationships and communication are the biggest thing in life. Never mind, never mind football, and and then with all of the pressures that football brings. You know, if you're not building strong relationships and you're not communicating effectively, then you're going to have some problems. So, without question, the role of the sporting director is you know, managing upwards, managing downwards, and managing sideways. And, and none is more difficult than the other, in my opinion. Managing upwards because you know we have to understand that owners and ownerships have huge pressure to succeed. Uh, they spend a lot of money, and they want to see return for that investment. And, and, and on that basis, you're always trying to find ways of them taking a more stable, consistent view on the life of a football club. As we know, it can, you know, we're, we're, as a business, we're publishing our results not only every week but you know biweekly, and, and that makes it that makes it very tricky. So you've got to try and find a way of gaining you know, gaining their trust and making things very consistent, very stable. Um, the head coach obviously needs a lot of support. And he needs to understand that you're there to support him, not only in terms of helping him make sure the operation is as fit for purpose as it can be, but then also helping to manage those relationships. And then, of course, you've got all of those heads of department who are trying to make their programs as good as they possibly can, as strong as they possibly can, have their own challenges with their own groups. And so trying to provide some support for them as best as possible is, is, is another big part of the job. And Ben, you've worked with three different sporting directors in your in your career as an analyst. How have you found it from almost the other side of the fence? Yeah, I think one of the interesting things Kevin said there is that football directors, sporting directors in certainly in the UK come under a lot of different guises. Um, I've worked with some chief execs who you could suggest are also sporting directors in, in a lot of ways. Um, it depends what they gravitate towards. Um, I think one of the challenges that sporting directors have is it, it almost depends what their background is um, as to which direction they gravitate towards on a more regular basis. Um, I've worked with sporting directors who came from the academy side, as, as Kevin has. So they're looking at player development, they're looking at pathways. And although their focus is, is obviously spread like, like Kevin's is, you know, there's, there's still always going to be something that you are 
going to push yourself towards on a more regular basis, something you're more comfortable with, or something that the club wants you to focus on. You know, every club has um, different philosophies, different things they want to achieve. Some of them may put more emphasis on on academy um, development because they know that the majority of the players they're going to get are going to come from that source. Others I've worked with are much more from the recruitment background, much more um, chief scouts, heads of recruitment who've, who've then stepped up into sporting director roles. And again, their natural gravitation is, is towards uh, scouting and recruitment. And then you've got the ones that are ex-coaches, ex-managers who are moving into those roles and will naturally focus on performance on the pitch. Um, so it, I think in the UK, it really does depend on what your background is and what you kind of gravitate towards. And that's certainly what I found. You know, I had a couple of different directors of football who did come from very different backgrounds. You know, worked with Nick Hammond at Reading, who, um, you know, was an ex-player, been at Reading a long time and, you know, really ran that football club day to day across all areas of the club. Um, had great relationships with the managers he worked with, but also spent a lot of time with us on the recruitment side. I worked with um, Barry Simmons for a time in his role as sort of head of recruitment at, at Fulham and also then at Norwich. And again, he was a sort of sporting director in, in, in a lot of ways because he was dipping into a lot of different areas. But his recruitment background as a head of, head of scouting meant his main focus was on that. So, um, And then, um, you know, it, it just depends on what your, what your background is. Um, and I think that also helps for people working underneath um, because we know better what the touch points are going to be with a director of football what are the things that they're going to gravitate towards what are the things that we can present to them that really interest them and, and that they can grab hold of and take away and what are the things that maybe we'd have to spend more time on um, going into a bit more detail spending a bit more uh, time to, to you know educate upwards as well as educate down you know certainly the sporting directors that I've been around and seen are not only very good at educating the people below them, but are also very willing to learn. Um, and I'm sure, you know, Kevin, you found that, that you can't be an expert in everything. And that's why you have heads of departments. You know, you, that's why you have people telling you uh, the, the best ways to go. And I think the, the most successful sporting directors, the ones that have been in the role the long, longest period of time have also uh, worked with their heads of uh, departments as well, so. Excellent. And as you mentioned, there can be a chance that people will lean in certain directions or have an expertise perhaps in one area. Kevin, it seems like yours is on the academy side. I know Wolves have had great success in bringing players through over recent years. Have you found that while that has that been perhaps a challenge to make sure that you don't just focus on the academy area as such, or you lean to that because of your past and make sure that all areas are still um, are still under your remit as such? Yeah, I mean, well, first and foremost. It's an, it's an interesting question because certainly at Wolverhampton Wanderers youth development has always been a big part of the plan you know years gone back all the way back to the 50s they, they were very strong on youth development um, I felt in initially when I first started the role it helped me massively uh, if only because I knew all of the players at every single level uh, I knew what their strengths were what their weaknesses were and then also for the majority of the majority of the football section of the club obviously I either appointed or worked with quite a lot of those staff members too. Um, so it gave me a real foothold in terms of knowing the direction of the club, the tradition, the history and sort of identifying where the strengths and weaknesses were of the plan and then also trying to find ways of joining that whole plan up together. I think without question in terms of the sporting director role, you know, Ben mentioned, mentioned it, recruitment is a big part of that uh, position. 
mainly because it's the biggest spend mm. <laughs> and it's the, the biggest opportunity for people to either support what you do or be critical about what you do depending on how well you do it um, because as soon as that player crosses that white line you know everybody looks down the everybody looks down the uh, down the seating arrangement and says well I'm not sure that's a good decision or wrong that's a fantastic decision and you know, so um, so that, that's probably where the biggest touch point where the biggest pressure comes from and of course fans, fans are no fools nowadays they've got a clear impression of who's good and who's not so good you know, within the team philosophy. So yeah, I think from my perspective, I, I felt that the academy background certainly helped me uh, and I felt it was a perfect springboard to moving into the sporting director role. But then of course, you've also got to make sure, as you quite rightly stated at the start, you don't not pay attention to the other elements of the job and, that, and that's really important. You can, you can get lost sometimes in focusing on one element and, and not paying enough attention to others. Do you think the fact that you were an academy manager with you know the size of academies now the amount of people that are involved the amount of coaches whether that's age group coaches or skill coaches now that we've got a lot of um, into academy recruitment it almost gave you that ability to move from doing basically a sporting director role mm-hmm. as an academy manager into being a sporting director for a first team and uh, throughout the club yeah very much so yeah and you're right in what you're saying it's almost like a we tried to we tried to have a very joined up approach at Wolves, where we operated one football department as opposed to academy and first team. But yeah. you know, in lots of places, rightly or wrongly, it, it is a, almost a club within the club, and therefore you are almost preparing to become picking up all of the skill set that you're going to need to become a sporting director because you are looking at you are looking at sports science, you are looking at medical services, you are looking at young player recruitment, youth development, young player development, coach training, staff development, etc. Yeah. So yeah, I think it's. Um, it's, it's a perfect way in really for, for, for any aspiring sporting director yeah. I mean one of the things that I've um, I've jumped over the fence having spent you know 10 years on the football side and I'm coming to work in a business now and one of my biggest challenges was, was learning the business side mm-hmm. was learning how do you manage finances how do you manage um, you know costs against uh, revenue and, and that kind of thing mm-hmm. I guess for a sporting director certainly the ones I've worked with that was something that they spent a lot of time having to manage as well so was that a challenge for you, sort of, kind of having to get to grips with the financial side? Yeah, very much so. And it's um, for us football people, it's the it's, it's the hardest part, oh, yeah. the most difficult part, and, the, and probably the part we'd like to pay least attention to. Completely agree. Um, <laughs> and, and again, I think it's um, we're back to the relationships and the communication piece. And again, people are strong and, and maybe not so strong in other areas. And my view on it is, you you're only as good as the people who are around you, or other people you employ, other people you appoint. So if I take my particular circumstance I work cl- very closely with the club secretary who's very strong on football administration and on that basis we work, we work very hard on what the budget I work very hard on what the budget should look like in terms of the, the, the head count and in terms of the detail of the programme and where it's going to add value uh, and then I lean on him a little bit in terms of him helping me to then translate that into a into a beautiful spreadsheet. <laughs> it's not so beautiful to me, but right. he'll certainly he's certainly much stronger in those elements than I am. So, you know, I think you, I think you've got to know your way around the business without question. But then also you've got to recognise that just because you're the lead in the department, not not all of the best solutions and not all of the best answers are not always going to come necessarily from you. You've got to use the skill sets that are at your disposal. And with those with those teams you've got around you. Is there, um, how is it a case of you receiving that information? Do you like them all together so there's a real sort of cross-pollination across departments or is it keeping them separate and then it's on you to, to integrate it in your own way? Yeah, well, well first and foremost, organisation and processes 
is very important, especially when there's a lot going on. Um, and, and what we also have to do, as I'm sure everybody's aware at football clubs, is you have to keep the, the strategy fairly fluid and very flexible. And the reason I say that is because everybody knows you know you can go two weeks and you're going down one you're going down one path on a strategy and, and it's in the bin because something happens or something changes, you know, and you've got you've got to maybe just change direction a little bit. We try and create windows of opportunity where our heads of department have a reduction in their operational time and we're working very hard on that at the moment. And what I mean by that is you, you appoint a head of department and straight away you fill a job description with as much information as you possibly can to almost suggest that's why you need the role, but actually you want or need them to work a lot smarter than that. So we're actually trying to find ways of streamlining job descriptions to give them more thinking time, to give them that more smart, smart time and actually think about how they develop and evolve you know, the quality of the provision. Uh, we meet regularly, so we have heads of department meetings where we're all together um, on a regular basis. And I think that's really important that people are aware of what other people are doing and then also we can sort of unpack any problems we've got with each other, with the programme. And then we also have individual meetings because I think it's important to give people time just for themselves and just for their programme, their plan. And it's not, it's not all about me making them accountable. It's about them also having the ability to make me accountable too. And that's important. You know, the, the, the sporting director role is, is a support role, that's what it is. It's the oil and the glue that helps everybody or maintains a process that, that, that works. And so therefore you have to be a, you have to be accountable because at some at some stages you're the only one who can make things happen for individuals. And if you don't play a strong part in that process, then they'll get frustrated with it. Ben from your side of it you would have presented to sporting directors, been in those meetings and been trying to connect with different departments. Have you found it? Similar experience, does that add up in terms of how, you, how you've had it? Yeah, I think um, one of the interesting things Kevin mentioned was that, you know, Wolves, um, they see it as one football club uh, and the academy and, and the first team very much linked together. Um, I've been in situations where, uh, for various reasons, and, and I don't, I think Kevin would agree, there's, there's not necessarily a right or a wrong here, it's just dependent on the, on the club. Um, but I've been in situations where the academy and the first team are kept very separate and they are almost run as two separate entities. Um, there's obviously gonna be players going you know, both ways. There's gonna be staff who work on, on both the first team side and the academy side, but I've seen it work uh, separately and I've also seen it work in the sort of um, uh, streamlined all together process. Uh, so I think it depends on, on the people you're surrounded with and how they like to um, have information fed to them. Um, certainly the sporting directors I've worked with have been very much across everything and I've wanted to look across everything and wanted to be tapped into whether that's sports science, recruitment, analysis, medical. But I think also what you have to do as a head of department is make sure you're streamlining the information. As you know, Kevin just mentioned there, all of the different touch points he has on a daily basis, all of the people he's working with, he hasn't got time to hear the minute details on every part of the running of a department or on every single player that we're, we're looking at in every market that we've got scouts or that we're looking at data for. He needs to see the top targets and he needs to see it in a way that he can take that away very quickly on a you know flight to Middlesbrough to review that information quickly and then go back and ask more questions. I always found that it was better to present something to a sporting director and make them ask more questions than give them so much information that they actually didn't read a lot of it or didn't have time to read a lot of it or just didn't understand some of it and then 
didn't want to ask questions later because it was just an over, overload of information. So. Is that, that, that the flight notion is quite interesting? Is that how you considered it in your roles in terms of, okay, I know I've got a window of 30 minutes here where there's nothing else to do, so this is going to be the focus? Absolutely. Let's yeah. tailor that work so it fits in nicely with all of that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, certainly from the recruitment perspective, it wasn't just that I wasn't going to get to sit down with the director of football because he wasn't there, it was because I might not be there. You know, I was traveling to watch games. I was in Europe. So sometimes you don't see each other for a week and 10 days because you're you're in Europe when he's in at home and then you swap over. So it is a lot of that. It's streamlining information so that it's um, you can look at it on a plane or on a coach or in a taxi or, or whatever. Um, because for directors of football, for heads of recruitment, for managers, desk time isn't something you get a lot of. So after this, Kevin's going to tell us he just watches Last Chance You on Netflix on these flights now. Yeah. <laughs> is it the um, yeah? Does that resonate? Is there a sort of is there a particular way that you found you prefer to receive information and, and report so in that way? Yeah, I suppose the first point to make is that I think you've got to be flexible. If somebody's got an important message to give you, um, and they feel that it's important to them, then it's got to be important to you. So I would I would I would hate to think that I didn't have an open door policy and people felt as if they couldn't come to speak to me if they if they needed to. But then also you've got to ensure that that doesn't just become noise. And what you end up doing is just becoming a busy fool, really. <laughs> so, yeah, you, without, without question, you're trying to create opportunities where, you, where your workforce understand that they've got the opportunity to speak to you if they need to, uh, and you would welcome that. But then also there is a lot going on, and therefore it's probably best packaging that into certain, into certain opportunities. I need to give you some information, but it's not something I need to speak to you about. I'm just going to give you, I'm just going to hand you the, the, the iPad, make sure you watch these three games, report back to me, those sorts of things. Or I've got something to talk to you about, but we've got a one-on-one next week. I can save it all up and we'll talk next week. Or maybe I'll just bite off one or two points. I think it's a two-way street. I think it's um, about knowing you as a, as a sport director, you knowing yourself and how you best like to receive information but then also you've got to look at it from the other side you've got to know your people and understand them and also recognize that sometimes they get value if they're able to deliver a message in a particular way and you can't you can't shut that off you know you have to have your own method but you have to have that growth mindset where you you're also understanding that other methods need to be used to best serve your best serve your workforce really interesting yeah i think that makes a fills up the staff around you, empowering them, trusting them to understand that their message will get across and will be heard seems like a, a hugely valuable tool and part of your role. I think one of the interesting things that I've seen in Sporting Directors, and it certainly sounds like Kevin's like this, is one of the one of the best things I think that Sporting Directors do, and certainly ones I've seen, are almost translate to their staff the best, the best way to speak to them, and the best way to, to go about it. Because if you do that early, those guys are in no doubt about when the best times to speak to you are, what the priorities are during the during the week. You know, if you've had a bad loss on a on a Saturday, don't go and see the sporting director on Monday morning because he's going to have enough on his plate to, to deal with. Unless there's something absolutely crucial, then pick your times. Um, but I think certainly it sounds like Kevin. You know, the communication lines are both ways, and I think that's sometimes um, some of the criticisms I've heard. Uh, sometimes the sporting directors in Europe have been that they are seen as the, the guy on a pedestal that is untouchable and is not somebody that you can get hold of uh, easily. But I, certainly the ones that I've spent time with, their communication to their staff is as good as the communication coming back the other way. 
It's a really nice point there. We're going to take a quick break and then we're going to, in part two, we'll look at the implementation of a, of a football philosophy along with uh, a bit more of a focus on academy football. Welcome back to Three at the Back. So we're going to start the second part by looking at the implementation of a club philosophy. So Kevin, that'll be a key part of your role. Could you tell us a bit about that? Um, both who you work with, how it's delivered, internal, external influences, and um, and yeah, how that, how it can evolve and develop uh, through the years. Yeah, so um, certainly from my perspective, if we're talking about if we're talking about whole club or certainly football departments, my perspective on it is it's much better being everybody's plan as opposed to just being your plan. I think shared ownership is vital. I think you get the best from people if they feel as if they have the ability to be heard and have the, the ability to to find a solution or add to the add to the program. I'm a bigger I'm a big believer in flatter structures. I, I appreciate as a sporting director I've got to make hard, fast, big decisions at times and people have got to almost go in go in a direction. But generally if there's an opportunity for a plan to evolve and breathe, then the my perspective is that's the, the best way forward. I had some good experiences and some bad experiences of that. Good experience, bad experiences. Me saying, "Okay, I think I know what the philosophy of this club is as good as anybody." I'll sit in a room and put an operations plan together and put a philosophy document together, and it looks beautiful and it's got a nice and glossy cover. And then you say, "Look, that's what it looks like, guys." Hoping they're gonna think, hoping they're gonna say it's great, and then actually it just goes on a shelf and it doesn't <laughs> do anything, and you know it becomes obsolete within about three days. So uh, I suppose I go back to an old adage, you know, if it was easy to do and it was a, if it was a quick fix, then then everybody'd be doing it. And so my view on developing a club philosophy is you, you you've got you've got to live it, and you've got to have your staff believe in it and live in it too. And the only way of doing that is by is by creating that that shared ownership, being involved on, on both sides. So you know, people would say, well, come on, how do you develop a club philosophy? Philosophy. Well, some clubs you've been able to develop it from bottom up. I, you know, you're an academy manager. You've got a lot of good practice and a lot of good shared practice going on, and then people see that work and then take it forward and take it on, and you're able to creep it, you know, up the top to the higher echelons at the club. Um, my perspective now, from a sporting director's perspective, is, you know, bottom um, top down is is also a strong way of doing it, and the message can sometimes be stronger if it's something that you know you're able to talk to from the top as being important culture as being important and then and then work with everybody to try and create this whole club mentality it's quite interesting actually because i think we're we're currently in transition at wolves we've come from a, a very british british owner in steve morgan to a chinese ownership in in Fosen. and so understanding that cultural piece and understanding how we find some sh shared philosophies and then creating a message the football club, fans, players, staff, it's going to be really, really important to what we do going forwards, and it's going to be a, going to be quite an exciting project. And how, have you, how have you found that with the new ownership in terms of building that philosophy? Yeah, it's been um, so we're in our second year with Fosen, second season, uh, and this season has been it's been excellent. Um, without question, everybody would say there's cultural differences uh, between between the ways in which. Uh, the guys from China want to operate and how we've operated. We've also got some, um, you know, we'd also been operating in a particular way for a long time. Have you, um, have you found you've learned a lot as well from the new the new cultural approaches that have come in, perhaps? 
Yeah, without question. Yeah, I think I think the first thing to say is you've got with all of these things we've got we, we need to understand that football has to be a very flexible, adaptable environment. You know, I think some of the talk about it being very ambiguous and very complex and very uncertain and volatile. I think it's all of those things. And so on that basis, if you're not willing to have a growth mindset, you're going to, you're going to be left behind pretty quickly, really. And so from, from my perspective, it's been it's been a difficult experience at times, but but also a challenging and then a very rewarding uh, experience, especially on the back of us finding some common ground, um, finding some bandwidth that we can all operate within and all understand and all agree and believe on and want to work to, and then obviously get to a new scene where we've been able to create very so- very solid uh, cultural platform, a very solid football philosophy that's been able to take us forwards. Excellent. And Ben, I think I'm right in saying when you joined Reading, that was essentially setting up that that technical recruitment side. Yeah. Did that? How did that feed into the existing playing philosophy? Did it influence the playing philosophy? Was it okay? This is we're starting again on that front as well. How was that for you? I think there's there's a really clear statement to make here is that there's a difference between club culture and football philosophy um, I think football philosophy is unfortunately no matter how hard clubs try is always going to be dictated to a large extent by the head coach whether that's a head coach or a manager and again there's a distinction to be made there um, but the club culture and the club philosophy can be built over a long period of time um, again someone like a club like Reading had a very uh, had a philosophy that was very much driven by its academy, uh, the success and the number of players that the club had developed, um, and so there was a strong focus around around the uh, the academy side of things, and actually a, a very uh, family orientated atmosphere at Reading. Um, so we had to coming into that environment. You know, we were coming in to set up a recruitment um, process, but one of the things we had to understand very quickly was that the academy was so important to the, the future of the club. And that we couldn't come in and start looking at players that were going to block um, the development of academy players because ultimately the the success of Reading Football Club was going to be dependent on the players that were developed more than it was the players that we brought in. So, um, so that was a kind of cultural thing we had to assess. And then on the football side, you you are constantly adapting. We all know that there's been a lot of change. Uh, in football clubs from the manager side and, and you can fans can see it on the pitch you know you can see the change in philosophy I'm sure that you know Kevin would say that since um, the change in manager and the football that Wolves have played this year everybody's you know so excited by what the club's done and the style of football they've played that's been a huge shift but I'd also probably suggest that you know Kevin's been at Wolves for a number of years the stability behind the football side in terms of what happens on the field has had a huge impact in the success of that philosophy, I would, I'd say, because of the culture that you've built in the background. So I do think there's a massive difference between club culture and football philosophy. Yeah, I think that's, that's certainly certainly a fair point. And going back quickly to your, you mentioned that Reading had to, um, looking at the, the um, academy style along with recruitment, was one of the key challenges for you, understanding, obviously, both the existing squad and the academy then, so you, you know what you're working with before you can go out and start that external process on the player front yeah absolutely because again you know the the success of the club uh, I would say probably similar to Wolves um, it was very similar at Fulham you know clubs where the long term success that there wasn't huge amounts of money flowing into the club that you could go and spend 10, 15, 20 million on players 
But if you could develop two or three that you could at some point probably sell on for, for reasonable fees to keep your club going, that's that's an obvious part of the success of the club. So it would have made absolutely no sense from a recruitment perspective to start putting blockers in place by signing a 22-year-old left-back who actually is no better than the 19, 18-year-old left-back you've got in your academy. Um, you put him on a four-year deal and suddenly you've blocked the, the path for that 18-year-old. Um, and you're probably paying three, four, five times in in transfer fee and salary than what you do for the player that you develop. So um, certainly the recruitment philosophy that, that we put in place was, was almost as much about understanding what our academy recruitment department was doing as much as it was about what we were trying to do in the first team. Excellent. And Kevin, earlier you mentioned that Wolves is almost operated as if it's one, one entire club and one, one culture, one philosophy. How does the yeah? How does the academy fit into that? Did it? Um, how have you sort of worked the two in, in tandem as such? Yeah, again, as stated previously, I think we're very lucky that um, youth development has always been high on the agenda at Wolves, uh, and, and with uh, with Fosen, our new investment group, it's no different. We did a couple of things in the, in the first instance when I moved from academy manager to sporting director to try and align the whole process a bit strongly, a bit more strongly, and that was we created. Um, a head of department job descriptions that, that had responsibility not only for first team elements but also for uh, academy elements so that the academy had had to have a level of importance and that was important to us at that time sort of 2013 2014 because we'd just been relegated to league one and we had to find a way of creating this reconnection with the fans and then also create this young, hungry, vibrant team that epitomised everything that, that those fans wanted to see and we wanted to see as a football club. Um, now with Fosen, they are an investment group and on that basis, you know, they are business minded. And so, of course, from their perspective, if we, get, if, we get, if we do get to the Premier League, they don't want to be continually spending 30, 40, 50 million on transfers and players. They want to create, you know, younger players who you either spend less money on or you or you produce for yourself that have the ability to be part of a very strong succession plan. So so we're working very hard on, on both of those things, making sure the first team's as strong as it possibly can be and there's got a strong squad as well as a strong starting eleven, but then also looking to the future and saying, okay, well come on, what does that look like? So that we almost find start that process to, to be as supportive as we possibly can be. Excellent. And a question for, for both of you. Within academy football, how do you um, what are your approaches to evaluating and benchmarking pro- progress, and um, what does that progress look like across different roles within the age groups? I mean, certainly from what I've seen, that one of the challenges that um, clubs have when uh, sort of benchmarking progress is often the only progress that the fans see or the public sees for your academy is the players that end up in your first team. Um, you know, players that have made appearances for either the first team or uh, youth national teams you know there's been a lot of talk over the last year or so over those players that played in those under 17 and under 20 teams that that were successful for England a lot of those kids not many fans would know about Um, you know there is always I think a hardcore group of fans in every football club who watches their academy teams watches their under 21s and watches the first team but there's only a small group Um, so I think it's tough sometimes for clubs who feel like they have a real success in their academies to show that if the if maybe they're not full, you know their first team isn't full of academy uh, products. 
Um, but certainly the, the academies that I uh, was involved in felt like the success was not just about developing players that are going to play for your club, but actually just developing footballers who are going to have success in their careers or even better than that, just developing good people um, and developing people with good skills and good um, philosophies that may not end up um, as successful Premier League Championship players but go on to have success in other careers. I was reading an article recently about a number of players who've been brought through a, a Premier League academy who never made a first team appearance, played a handful of games, um, I think sort of League 2, National League level, but have now become very good academy coaches. Um, and I think that's also um, a cause for celebration in the game, that, that we're having that pathway of success not just in football, but actually uh, as footballers, but actually as coaches and administrators and other people in the game. So, MC internally, obviously, we've established that there is a, a success that's different to what it looks like from the outside, which is entirely understandable. And you mentioned one of the keys would be to have a to, to create good footballers that whether it's the team they're at, where they flourish, or whether it's somewhere else. Is there anything that quantifies or gives a further perspective as to what that good looks like and? And how that's benchmarked. Well, again, one of the challenges for a club is that ultimately they do have to try and develop players for the first team. And so often uh, academies focus on playing one style of football that develops one style of player that is going to work for first teams. Now, I'd probably suggest that happens more at the sort of very elite clubs, Champions League type clubs who don't need to bring through a lot of players and only need the 1%, half percent of players to be successful. But I suggest that, that clubs slightly further down the pyramid are able to develop much rounder footballers um, who are able to go on and play um, a lot of a, any level of the game. I was talking to a ex-sporting director recently who was saying that he always used to get frustrated um, when they were uh, scouting academy players or scouting young players because they always felt like Wolves had already got there first. So <laughs> they Yeah. <laughs> so I think, you know, benchmarking is dependent on what your success criteria is. In terms of metrics to do that, obviously from a, uh, a data perspective, you know, we're working with a lot of academies now at Opta um, to provide that level of service and to be able to benchmark players against their first team players. But it, it is difficult. Uh, and again, I come back to success criteria. I think it depends what you want your academy to achieve. Kevin, how's that been for you? Not necessarily exclusively at, at Wolves, but at previous clubs and uh, at the federation you were at before. Yeah, I think I think Ben's made a really good point there, and that there's there's some there's some harder measurements without question. So everybody initially looks at well, who's succeeded, and and that's a very very difficult thing to do nowadays, especially with the pressures on. Head coaches, managers, and the finances that are now uh, that are now at stake, championship to Premier League and, and staying in the Premier League. But certainly, one of the measures is who gets through to the first team. A couple of things that we're trying to do is we're trying to look at player progress, not only player progress into the first team, but through the through the years, through the age groups. Are we recruiting and identifying the right players, and and then are we developing those players? So are we able to keep hold of them, keep moving them forwards? I think that's important. Um, I also think player savings sort of gets overlooked a little bit. You know, if we've got a squad of twenty-five and six of them come from the academy, even though they might may not play a huge amount in the eleven in the first instance as they're still developing, it's still a huge saving in terms of 
transfer fees and in terms of um, in terms of salaries, you know, and, and that that shouldn't that shouldn't be overlooked. And whenever possible, whenever possible, our academy is always working on trying to trying to break even, you know, or try to add financial value if they possibly can. But I think there's also an enrichment side. There's a softer side that you know you you sort of forget your peril really, and that is staff development, player, and, and then also player development. You know, we, we should be as professional football clubs in the Championship and in the Premier League in particular. You know, we should be developing young people. We should be providing opportunities for them to be better and to be successful at our clubs or other clubs or in sport. Uh, and I think you know, from my perspective, that's certainly been a big part of my job is trying to remain fairly young at heart. And what I mean by that is enjoy seeing young people get better, whether they eventually become players or coaches or sports scientists or sports staff or whatever it might be. Uh, and I think those things are important. And it's also important to have a culture where you see development of young people as being at the, the heart of what you do. You know, you've got, you've got an important responsibility and an important role to play, I think, as a football club in the local area. Excellent. Certainly, certainly agree with that. You mentioned a lot about strategies right across the club having to be very flexible, and I imagine that's just exactly the case at academy level and youth football as well, given the different rate of development among players, people obviously late bloomers, some people grow physically at different ages. I imagine there's got to be an element of flexibility. It's, I can't imagine it's a case of by 16 or 17, X, Y, or Z must be the case. I imagine there is that, that room to grow there. Yeah, without question, and I can't quite remember what the, what the saying is, but it goes something like... Um, you know, strategy strategy never survives the first contact with the enemy you know in battle and, and that's very much the case at football clubs you've got to make sure that you've got a clear strategy but it has to be flexible and adaptable to the needs of the individuals you've got to have the context and the environment you know if you if you don't pay attention to to those things then 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 ultimately you probably you're probably going to make some poor decisions along the way and it's very very difficult I think the academy job developing players is, is really really difficult because there's so much going on with young people you know in terms of growth maturation in terms of family life lifestyle social aspects etc etc you know you really have got to be an expert you've really got to work really hard to really focus down on knowing people knowing the individuals getting to know those kids I'm sure many people have lots of examples where they've not paid attention to some markers or perhaps not known the players as well as they should do and then Surprise, surprise, in 18 months' time, when they come through that growth spurt or their family life has settled down, they, they end up being what they should have been all along. And, you know, you, you, you've, got to, you've got to apply some patience and you've got to apply some, um, again, some developmental bandwidth. You know, you're not always going to see the finished article, you know, you know on, on every day of the week or, or, you know, or every game. I think that's the points you make there are really interesting from, from our perspective on the sort of data analytics side. Mm-hmm that's one of the hardest things to use data for. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in sports science and, uh, and medical over the last few years, or probably five to 10 years, they've grown their understanding of youth development as from a physical perspective mm-hmm. um, and understanding those different points where you could expect this player to grow at this rate and mm-hmm. maybe his feet to catch up with his, <laughs> his growth at times. Um, and then for this guy, he's not gonna grow much more and so what you're seeing now is his probable physical maturation. Um, I always use Harry Kane as an example. I went to scout Harry, you know, many times for Millwall and, and Norwich when he was on loan. And, you know, always felt like his feet often didn't catch up with his head and sometimes was a little bit awkward in his movements. 
suddenly his physical development just caught up and he's now the player that we know today so he's a classic example of um, not making a judgment too early there's plenty of times uh, certainly early on in his loan spells where you could have dismissed him as a player that just didn't have it or didn't wasn't quite there wasn't quite a Premier League player but if you did that then you may you certainly would regret it now so um, and I think from a, a event data perspective from a, an analytics perspective that's something that we try and do a lot of is profile the player rather than take averages and be very generic about you know this is what a fullback looks like well there's actually a lot more detail that needs to go into it because you need to understand where they are on that development path obviously, have, um, obviously their, their actual age and their, and their minutes age as such someone like a, a Wayne Rooney he's played so many more minutes than the, the players age I think that's something that's pretty much commonplace in the NBA and how they how they measure things from that perspective so um, you probably know more about it from my side of the US sports but that seems like an easy sort of understanding a bit more context in, in the first instance. Yeah, I mean, players who play a high number of minutes at a young age tend to tail off sort of earlier in their career. I mean, you know, Wayne Rooney, Michael Owen, you know, there's plenty of examples. Just naming them, see, I was just Kieran Dyer, <laughs> more. But yeah, I mean, that's a that's a piece of analysis that, that we've spent some time on and, and looked at. And But again, that's a, that's a challenge for... Uh, for young, uh, for coaches and managers. I mean, you look at Ryan Sessegnon at the moment, playing the amount of minutes he is um, in, in the championship, but you can't stick him on the bench for, for periods of time because he's, you know, he's a, a real threat. So, as a manager or as a director of football, that must be an incredible challenge to say, I've got a 17 year old, 18 year old who is more than capable of being a top player in the league. But do I balance that with what his development might look like? You know, that's that's mm. an incredibly tough challenge. And that must be something you, you Kevin, have had to face on, on numerous occasions. Yeah, and I'm just thinking about how I'd answer it now. It's a very, <laughs> it's a very, it's a very tough answer, that, because, yeah. like I say, you're all stuck in between you know, allowing it. And, of course, that young player will want to play every minute, as they, as they yeah. often do. <laughs> yeah. So giving them the opportunity and the space and time to, to flourish, but then also making sure that you, um, you're not causing them greater problems further down the line. And, my perspective is, you know, you, you've really got to try and take a balanced view on that. You've, you've got to look at the the needs of the individual, and 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 then and then act accordingly. Really, you know, again, as a sporting director or as head coaches, you've got a big responsibility there, you know, to to allow those young players to live at the time and space to develop appropriately in in respect to their needs, as opposed into respect of, you know, in respect of yours, really, and that's an important point. I think the, the soft skills come into that as well. You know, like you mentioned, a player wants to play every minute, whether they're 17 or 32, you know, mm. and the challenge of balancing that conversation with them and saying, well, actually, you know, mm. you, this 17 year old who could break into the first team, it's actually in your best interests to, to let's let you mature, let's let you develop. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that again, the soft skills that are involved in sporting directors or uh, head coaches are, are invaluable. Yeah, I imagine we could do another hour, two hours on that and get Kevin to miss his flight, but <laughs> we probably shouldn't do that. Um, Kevin, thank you very much for joining us today. Really appreciate your time. Um, great to have you on. Yeah, my pleasure. Really enjoyed it. Thank Good you. Good stuff. Ben, thank you as ever. Cheers, man. And thank you for listening.